I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter is going to be because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. See, I'm a philosopher and I'm not going to argue very much because if you don't argue with me, I don't know what I think. So if we argue, I say thank you because though going to the courtesy of your taking a different point of view, I understand what I mean. Hello and welcome to the Last Turtle podcast. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Scott Santens, who is a writer and advocate for basic income, also known as universal basic income. We discuss what this concept is, why it's coming back to the fore, and really get into the nitty-gritty of uh, the benefits and what it can and cannot do. We tackle some of the objections, the common issues that people have with it, talk about some of the solutions the misconceptions, and what it might provide in tackling some of the biggest issues we're actually facing as a society today. This is one of those big picture ideas that I enjoy thinking about and discussing, and I happen to believe it's a really interesting one we should promote. And so this conversation was very detailed and very nuanced, which brings a lot of the specifics out and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I give you Scott's sentence. So today I have with me Scott Santens. And Scott, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been uh, following your, your, you and your, your work for a while now. My, my barometer was before you changed your uh, Twitter handle and, and got verified. <laughs> Um, so, and, and, uh, and it's been interesting because I think, uh, the reason obviously I brought you to, uh, today to speak to you on the podcast is by universal basic income. And I wanted to ask you, I've heard about this concept a little before I came across your work, but I think once you showed up on my radar, um, it's, it's become very, you know, um, it's, you, you've sort of become the, the sort of the funnel for a lot of the information I've, I've found, which is fantastic and one of the reasons I've wanted to talk to you. But I am curious as to um, how did you suddenly, you know, what, what got you into becoming a, this uh, spokesperson or uh, an evangelist for uh, universal basic income or rather um, unconditional basic income? And we'll, well, then we'll get into some of the definitions. Yeah, so uh, my introduction to it was um, uh, there was a discussion on on the front page of Reddit back in 2013. It was like a late summer, and um, this discussion was about how quickly technology is advancing and how really nobody has a clue how quickly it's advancing. And uh, as someone who has long, long cared about technology and you know technology background and stuff uh i found stuff in that thread that even surprised me and i was like wow like if i'm surprised then and that the stuff's going on like like there's already self-driving trucks uh in mines in you know new zealand with the company with the has stated the explicit purpose of automating the entire fleet by you know 2020 and they were already like you know 20 percent of the way there so it's like wow this is happening really fast like this technology just happened like uh you know it was just seemed like a few years before that where 
the DARPA competition resulted in a winner of the self-driving you know car, and uh, that was incredible how it went from from like a winner of this thing that it was like kind of funny to watch this over the years, and all of a sudden there was a winner, and now all of a sudden there's like commercialization of this technology without people even like talking about this. And so that was even before like the, the Google car was around, but it wasn't to the degree where it is now as far as how quickly like self-driving cars has entered this conversation. But anyway, so you know, back in 2013, that, that got me thinking about this future that we're headed to where we have all this technology and it's doing incredible things. We want this technology. And yet at the same time, it's going to be putting people out of, out of employment and at the same time concentrating wealth in the hands of the owners of all this you know, technology. And so inequality was going to grow. And it just seemed very dystopian to see this route that we're going down. And there was the story called Mana that was recommended too, that was really interesting, uh, written by Marshall Brain. And it's just this really cool kind of a short story where it kind of uh, the beginning half of it is dystopian. And it's, it's pretty much our, the branch that we're going along. And then the second part of this is is this more kind of utopian look at how like what changes can we do? What's what's possible using just ch- making different choices? And uh, it was it was that that really kind of got me thinking about this, saying like yeah, how, what choices can we make that can really lead to this far better future instead of this things getting worse? And and, and by worse too, like um, you know, a definition of that would be in the story, it's like because people were put out of work, the response in the dystopian version was just like free housing and free food, which kind of resulted in these kind of compounds of the unemployed where, you know, it just kind of became like prisons and, you know, it's kind of like anti-freedom. And this, it's amazing how all this like advanced technology could just lead to like a worsening of the human condition when it should not at all do that. So, I started looking into these different solutions and it just, I came across basic income and looking into the evidence and, and seeing like, you know, how we actually tested this to a degree in the seventies, both Canada and the U S and how there's actually been like trials that have been done in India and Namibia and, you know, looking into those and looking into cash transfer evidence, just the more I looked into this, the more it seemed like this makes a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons. And when I realized that, it's almost like um, it's like a master key for a whole lot of locks. I feel if you can just if we can get that key, then we can make a whole lot of great new choices that are kind of locked to us right now. So like people say, it's a, like oh, it's on a silver bullet. Yeah, it's on a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. It's not like the miraculous everything you know does all. But what it does is it enables these new choices in a way that just are kind of closed to us right now. It just will affect so many things in so many positive ways. And when I realized that, it was like, I've got to put everything I can into this. I've got to, you know, just, I can't just sit back and hope that somebody else does it. I've got to do what I can. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, and this this might be a good time to kind of just give the the brief overview of uh, of UBI and and how it, you know, what it is or how it might work because it's, and, and I do want to get into some of the specifics because, uh, initially, as I looked into this, it you know my fr- I think I went through the general reactions that a lot of people go through of you know having some resistance because of 
society and the way I grew up and, you know, individualism, especially in the United States. Um, and then went into realizing just how much it can solve and thinking about it as like this panacea. And then moving into some of the, you know, the more I dug into it, the more I realized the nuances of it. And it still can be quite, quite uh, impactful. But uh, we, we'll, we'll get into the nitty gritty in a second. But if you want to just give a brief overview of uh, universal basic income. Yeah, so uh, essentially it is a, an income floor. It's the creation of a, of a foundation underneath all of us. It's like right now we have a guarantee of $0 per month, and a basic income says, okay, let's give everybody in, – in the U.S., I talk about $1,000 per month being this level – uh, but it's you know how you define poverty. It, it, what you want to do is actually give people enough money to cover your most basic needs, and that's on an individual level. It's a uh, non-conditional. It's you know whether you work or whether you don't work. Everybody as a citizen gets this amount of money to cover their basic needs, and so it's like you're raising the floor from zero to a thousand dollars per month uh, in the U.S. And then everything you earn on top of it, you earn on top of it. Um, you know that's uh, it's it's just a it's a very powerful idea too to think that that um, you know you mentioned that it's kind of a uh, I don't know if you were alluding to it being non-individualistic because that was something that you were kind of hesitant about it, but uh, it really does. It's 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 a way of almost giving people uh, boots. You know, it's like when you say that you should just pull your up by your own bootstraps. It's like you, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots. So it's like it's like universal boots. Everybody gets a pair of boots, and you know you can pull yourself up by them or you don't. But either way, you actually have them. And you know it's it's that you have to have you have to have money to make money. You have to have something to work with, and that's what basic income gives everybody. It's funny that people use the pull, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps as like you know and bootstrapping. As it, I always found it funny because it's literally impossible. Like right, the it's, idea it's, of it's physically impossible. Up, yeah, exactly. You can't just uh, so it's always been a, a funny comparison. Yeah, but but yeah, I think the individualism part is the stigma of quote unquote uh, theoretical laziness or that because we're so used to it, that, uh, looking at you have to earn your keep, you have to earn your existence. Um, and and it, and that's like the res, the the first resistance that I, I I started running the experiment of just talking to people, and and bringing this up and seeing what what people's reaction and that's a big one for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like a, a kind of a core principle at the center of this too is trust, and it's like the the way that our system is built right now is built on distrust. It's like you you have this assumption that people will not do anything unless you force them to do something that you have to make decisions for them because otherwise they'll make poor decisions. It's like, those are like the system that we're built around and basic income is saying that I trust you. And I know that if you have this money more likely than not, you will use this money in actually some pretty creative ways that I couldn't even thought of. And by allowing you to make these choices that, that you can do yourself, that you have agency, that you have this, um, that you can actually, become more um, become more you like you can actually have these greater choices and greater freedom that we're preventing right now because we're just assuming that people have to be forced to do things and it's just it kind of a, it changes this around yeah I think I think what has occurred to me when it when it finally hit me is when I started looking at the problem differently because my initial instinct 
especially if just if you're looking at the U.S. and we're like uh, a wealthy country, a wealthy Western country, or even if you look at the world, there's enough for everybody and all that stuff. And I thought, how how come there are still so many poor people? People don't have enough to eat. Let's like take care of the poor. I think I think the my tipping point was um, one of my favorite meditation teachers and thinkers, uh, Kenneth Falk, was posting posting on uh, on Twitter. And he said um, uh, something like to the effect of a measure of a just society is if you're if you'll be okay uh, trading with the with the person who has it the worst. And then it was like, you know, it, it really struck me because then I put myself in in their shoes even more so, or anybody's shoes. And I thought, okay, let's just find a way to raise the bottom. But then when I started looking also at the sort of big picture. And that's it's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast and why I actually wanted to talk to you about this subject is I'm trying to look at the big picture of things. And I started asking the question, what do we actually want to achieve as a society? You were talking about utopia. And I was thinking like, why do we even have a government? Why do we have these systems? And some countries have healthcare. And, um, you know, why are we building roads and all that stuff? It's like, We've always been working towards a system that can take care of issues as a, as, a, as a global society, as a society as a whole. And this seems to actually finally tackle that in a way that we've never done before. Yeah, yeah. It sounds almost like you're thinking of the possibility of a resource-based economy. Um, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that at all, but it's, it's even just this idea of post-capitalism, this idea of a, kind of more of a Star Trek a society of a world without money and where we're using you know science and technology for the benefit of everyone um that i think like one of the reasons that actually brought me um to this idea too as being so important is again a, it's a way of unlocking that door that i feel is kind of locked right now i think that that uh that the way that we have designed our society and the way that we've actually been operating for quite a while has been this uh, this kind of scarcity mentality. And so, if if somebody has something, then I can't have it. And you know, if it's mine, then they can't have it. And so, it's all this like fighting over resources and competition. And and uh, and because of that, we have that same mentality. And yet, we've actually surrounded ourselves with abundance now, thanks to technology. Like we have this incredible technology, and you see this when you look at like the you know measures of inequality, where it's like these graphs are just kind of crazy when you when you think that you know that most recently that now one percent of the world has more than the other ninety nine percent. Like that's just an insane amount of, of inequality. So we have like this abundance, but it's just accumulating in a very small portion. And so the question is, you know, what do we need to do uh, to actually change the system so that everybody benefits? And I think this uh, part of changing this, trying to changing this mentality from scarcity to abundance, is we have to we have to decouple uh, income from work. Because as long as we believe that you have to do a certain job of some kind for some person, that you have to earn that money, then there will always be that like inequality there to this growing degree because you know capital is replacing labor and there's no need for all these people. And as, as long as you don't provide an income separate from that, then that's going to be a big problem. And not only for those without the income, but also for those at the top because – who are you selling this stuff to? 
if there's no customers. So it's like it's you know it's an erosion of the entire system, and there's going to be a breaking point. And so we have to decouple work from income so that people actually do receive. Say, think of it as like a technological dividend that everybody is receiving in income from the earnings of all of this abundant technology that we've created over generations. And as soon as we do that, as soon as we cut that link and we do start providing everybody with access, which is what it is. I mean, money is access to these things in the system that we've created. So as soon as you start providing everybody this universal access to this technology and uh, this world of abundance, then we can actually start feeling and seeing this abundance. And that's where the things that get really interesting for this future of like, you know, more into the future as far as like utopian kind of thinking of, of kind of a Star Trek world. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things you said there that I want to sort of address and, and get your input on. And it's, and it's all interwoven because there's the aspect of, I love the te- you know, technology dividend. Uh, is that how you, you call it? Technological dividend? Yeah, yeah, technological dividend. It's great. And, uh, and, and there's a part of me that definitely wants to work towards a future like Star Trek, although I think that it, that is definitely farther down the line. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and also because just the monetary system and every all the systems that we've set up have so much momentum that it will take time. But there are steps towards that. But here's where it's connecting to also automation is my first thought was if all we're trying to do is take care of people and money is just a way to basically it's a tender for resources. It's like a it's right. a you know, it's a way to buy food and to buy, you know, uh, pay for rent and, and what you need. What if we just, especially with automation, what if we just provide people with what, with what they need? Like just provide them with food so nobody goes hungry. And I don't know about housing. This is a little more involved and tricky. But one example of it is something like food stamps, which is not a great system by any measure. But if you could actually provide people food, is, is there a problem of, you know, instead of just giving them money, well, they still don't have as much choice because <laughs> they can only eat what you give them and the robots come every morning and lay down a, a bunch of food that they don't like or yeah so so here's a, here's a funny story that kind of kind of uh put this into focus a bit is that it's funny that we're talking about things in this kind of frame of reference today where we're talking about well maybe we should just give out food instead of say food stamps or something and we're we're back in the day the the actually the the, the phrase handout comes from this uh what we did in during the depression where we were like trucks went around and handed out like surplus food to people. And so they were handed out food and we, we found that that was problematic because, well, first of all, you know, you're not, there's no choice involved. You're just getting what's available. And on the second part, the people, this is politicians on both sides were, were starting to worry that, this was eroding the market, and people who owned businesses didn't like this because people weren't coming into their businesses. Great point. So they thought, well, let's actually give them like a, you know, a tool that they can use that they can go into the markets and purchase the food, and that way they can get other stuff there too. Uh, but they can actually have more choice and the market works and you know that's that so that, that's really it's a very it's a market solution to actually give people say food vouchers and originally with food stamps you got it was actually a purchase so you would say here's a dollar and then you got back two different kinds of stamps and one stamp was like for a dollar stamp and another stamp um was for 
allowed you to buy like essentially a dollar and a half worth of, of like excess supply food and stuff. So it was a way of like making your dollar go further to buy food, but you still actually got to choose what food you wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. That was the birth of this like food stamp system. And of course, nowadays we're at this point where it's like a debit card and essentially it's same as cash, but you are prevented from using it for certain things that a lot of people, you know, would actually find very useful and would actually make them happy too. But it's also locking, it's preventing people from using it for more like entrepreneurial things too. Um, So it's like, and for other things as well. So let's say you have um, rent of say $500 and you have like um, $150 worth of food stamps and you're short, say $50 in rent this month. And so what you what you can't do really unless you sell the food stamps, which is illegal, is to, you know, sell that and then use $50 of it and then just kind of like, you know, eat ramen or something for a month, but you can get past it. Uh, you don't have that flexibility with this isn't because it's not cash. So there's all these creative things that that are people are prevented from doing by actually preventing people's choices. And that's one of these examples. Um, like if you look at the success of, of unconditional cash transfers and even conditional cash transfers too, but as long as there are cash transfers in um, these programs all over the world, is that people are actually very entrepreneurial at heart. And so like with Give Directly, where they're giving out cash, uh, which is this, it's like essentially a base kingdom for people in Kenya and Uganda, uh, where look at like a lump sum and it's essentially like a year's worth of money they actually use that in some really cool ways. Like uh, let's say like one person um, used that money to, to purchase uh, some solar panels. And then they started a business like charging up villagers cell phones. It, Cause this is all like cell phone banking is how people do this too. And so that was like a business they came up with. And another person used it to buy a power saw and they went into business actually like, uh, you know, cutting down trees around and, and selling wood and stuff. And, um, and so give directly made this fun blog, uh, about like how there's no charity for power saws. Like you can't like go to a charity and say, Hey, I'm poor. Can you give give me a chainsaw? (laughs) Like you can't do that. But if you get cash, you can do these things. You can be very creative. Uh, there's just, there's no limit to what people can come up with when it comes to cash. It's an infinite amount of choices. But as soon as you give people some vouchers for, say, a house or a food, you know, then that's very limiting. And in fact, also, like, that's a problem with housing vouchers even, which is still better than public housing. But with housing vouchers, I, I think people assume that it's as good as cash and it can be used anywhere. But that's not at all how it works, is that it's up to the landlord to accept these things. And so people who get housing vouchers are restricted to living in certain areas with certain landlords. And of course we know that that's a problem too, as far as what the result of having like pockets of poverty uh, versus like people being able to live anywhere they want to. So that's really like another, another example of, of how much better cash would work instead of a voucher, even though we may think of them as very similar. Yeah, I think the 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 value uh, that money that are the system of exchange that we've set up, which is a, by no means perfect, definitely as as it comes to the some of the nuances of of interactions around it and the incentives that it's set in place. But the advantage has always been the flexibility is basically uh, exchanging value in an easier way that's like open ended, basically. 
Like we can we can decide on what we want to exchange this value for. Again, not without its issues, but at least it's a it's a more open, flexible system, and we can still you know take advantage of it if we're actually trying to provide people with something that's going to help them, especially just raise the bottom, as I say, right? Um, uh, allow them that flexibility. So I, I do want to get into some of the some of the uh, specifics and the arguments against or the trying to understand it because it's the same questions that I've had when I came across this. The biggest one is where would the money come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, the more I thought of it, I, I'm sure you're going to have a, a, the answer. Obviously, I did my back of the envelope kind of calculations. I came up with like between two and a half trillion to three trillion, depending on you know, a lot of the, 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 the playing with the numbers and who's getting it, adults, what age, so, so on and so forth. Um, but that's one, that's a lot of money, but also the, I, I, I always try to go further because this actually uh, touches upon the idea of giving people food as opposed to giving people money because the automation and the whole idea of like, there is abundance of resources and, uh, other than the fact that the logistics of just trying to provide everybody with what they need theoretically is cumbersome on its own and is probably wasteful rather than give the money and let the rest of the systems take care of itself. But um, there is an abundance of resource. And what we forget, as I was trying to think big picture, is that the, the answer to the question, where does the money come from, actually is the same answer to the question, where does all money come from? Like money is something we don't just find outside, out there. And I think you've referenced somewhere Alan Watts, which is a, mm-hmm. just an amazing uh, philosopher and thinker and talking about, you know, what, what is money actually. And, and, and again, it's just the way we decided upon exchanging value. So do you want to take a stab at answering just the, the specifics of in, in actuality now that we do have this money system, how do we, how do we finance this? Yeah, well, since you bring up the question, you had even mentioned Alan Watts. Like, I really do love uh, love his talk about this and the way that he looked at this. So, first of all, I really like how he referred to to money as inches. Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a tool that we've devised. So he, he made this kind of funny analogy where you know, imagine that uh, someone who is like a construction worker goes to uh, the work site one day, and they're like. Sorry, you can't go to work today. Why? Well, because we're all out of inches. And it just seems kind of absurd, and it is. And so it's just kind of, if you look at the depression, like we had all of the resources, we had the productive capacity, nothing was changed. But it was almost like we had this mental blockage as to how we were just out of inches, even though we had everything there and we could have actually been at full productive capacity. But there was a depression of this last lack of money, and which is, kind of weird it's just like a psychological like hang up where um you know is everything was there we could have done it and so it's a way that he talks about uh and he had talked about a basic income too is like you know again as you create more and more technology um we you know we're putting people out of work and uh, we have to actually provide people the income to purchase what the machines are producing or else, you know, the entire system breaks down. And so he even called this as, um, you know, it's, it's not at all. It's like tax. It's not, it's like the reverse of taxation. You're not taxing people. It's the other way around. You're actually giving people money so that they can actually become part of this, you know, abundant technology. And, um, you know, there are 
there are many ways to go about the funding and you know one way and, and this is is uh this is actually kind of a misunderstanding too, but it is actually an option, but it's also a misunderstanding is that people believe that we're going to print $3 trillion per year of new money and give it to everybody on an annual basis. And therefore, you know, that would be expanding the money supply. And therefore that would definitely lead to inflation. And so people think, well, you know, if we give a basic income, then obviously the prices of everything are going to go up. And then of course, then, you know, that's hyperinflation and therefore it's not worth anything because the price of, you know, instead of stuff costing uh, $10,000, now they cost, you know, $22,000. So you're like no better off. And so this, that's like a misunderstanding of, of basic income as just being brand new printed money. Like for the, some people do want to do that. Um, like Bill Gross is, do you object? Uh, it's not that I object because it, it's definitely possible. It's you know we could do that. It's just that we do have this this mentality of inflation being bad and and the the results of that. Let me just point out uh, the the thing that I was trying to allude to, but I don't know how to articulate fully is the fact that people don't quite even when I try to to sort of envision it in my head, it's not quite clear how productivity just translates into into money like there's nobody nobody is actually doing like a productivity to money exchange other than in just the real world now that we do have money and printing more money if we are when when businesses and even the government and just a society as a whole increases productivity while actually reducing labor you know that's productivity that's based on you know increasingly on free energy not like just coal and everything like that but just solar power for example, and wind power provides us with valuable, useful energy that creates productivity, uh, basically for free, to one degree or another, and that translates into more value that we can actually print at least some of the money for, right? Right, and so it, this is actually a way that um, that that I actually do quite like is that um, you know as as our GDP grows, as our productivity grows, we of course need to have more of these inches that people can use uh, for the system to work because otherwise you're going to have like fewer inches to chase all these goods and so there's going to be people without them so they can't access them so it is important to to grow this um, you know monetary supply along with uh, your your productive capability so that you can actually afford to purchase all you know everything that's being made in the system and because of that like we do naturally grow the money supply um, over time. And so there's no reason why we couldn't actually create the money in the hands of citizens instead of letting banks do it, which is actually how the money gets made right now. Like people are under the understanding that government is like printing money with printing presses. And that's all actually only a very small percentage of how money gets made. It's actually created by banks. So if somebody takes out like a mortgage on a house, like it's really, they just type it into the system and that's like new money because of the fractional reserve system. And so then they're able to lend out money and then another bank is able to lend out that money with only keeping a portion of it. And so the money supply grows out of this debt that banks are giving. And they actually create like 95% of the money supply this way. So we've actually given the ability, which is supposed to be uh, 
reserved for to the you know legislative branch to you know it's it's up to us as as our government to actually create our currency but we've actually let private institutions do this and so they get the benefit of this as well they get the interest and they get to just make as much as they want to and they are the ones benefiting from the system so but it doesn't have to be that way and we've seen actually what happens too when we the, when it kind of runs amok like with the the, the housing crash and the Great Recession. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of uh, instability in such a system too. So it just makes a lot of sense to just say, okay, banks should be the way that we think banks are, which is a store, like a vault for this money, in which case they would need to keep 100% of the reserves, you know, of what they, of what they have. It, no longer it would be they only get to keep 10% or something. Like they have to actually have everything – uh, that's that's in there. And so instead of if that system, we would need to create the money through the government, which is what we think that we're doing now, but we aren't. But then we create the money. And in order for that to make sense in the most fair way, then everybody gets the same amount of money as like the starting point. So, you know, if, if we're creating, say, uh, you know, $350 billion um, worth of money, then, you know, everybody would get you know, say, uh, say $350 million worth of money, then everybody would get, you know, a dollar because there's 350 million people or whatever. So you just want to make sure that the money starts off in the actual accounts of the citizens instead of in in one person's or one institution's or whatever place and then going out because that's the most fair uh, system and it's also the most decentralized as as well and the most stable. So I really like that idea uh, as we could actually use that system. It's called citizen seniorage. And, you know, that could actually fund, uh, let's say, $100 a month, uh, $200 a month, maybe, of, um, of this of base. Thousand. Right, of the $1,000 a month. And that would, be, that would not lead to inflation because, again, that's the, the growth of the economy. It's, it's built in. Right. So that's one way of actually creating part of this without touching taxes or anything. Um, so... The way that the, that I would prefer to see us pay for this too, and again, there's just there's a lot of options, and I actually like that there are so many options because I think that we should do a lot of them because I think it can have its own improvements in the system. So, like another example would be uh, financial transaction taxes. So that's something that could fund. You know, there's different measurements. Like some say it could be around 85 billion. And, um, you know, others, uh, say it could be like, um, you know, 200 billion. Um, it depends, uh, it depends on, it depends on the percentage you set this at. And it depends on, you know, if people shift capital, you mean like stock market yeah. uh, transactions, right? Mostly it'd be mostly stock market transactions. So this would be kind of a way of putting kind of a, uh, kind of a natural kind of speed limit on, these high frequency trading transactions because it would cost, you know, a a 1% fee per transaction. So right now it's like, there's a race to, to, to do as many and as fast of transactions as possible. And that of course led to the, the flash crash, uh, you know, not too long ago. And so there's that instability of the system there too. And it's also, they're not essentially getting paid for you know hard work or anything it's just a matter of like doing something first before the other people yeah. and it, it's all it's like a form of rentierism too and uh, the, the thing about this as well is is this 
the stock and and bonds are it's very unequally owned as well even when you're including pensions and stuff is that uh, it's it's so unequal that one percent of the population owns fifty percent of all of these stocks and bonds and investments and the bottom fifty percent owns one percent of them so like that's how unequal this is so if you did do a financial transaction tax then that would be a very progressive way of doing this that would really target the top 1% and then that funding the basic income that would actually fund everybody else. So I really like that way of going about this too as a, as a smart kind of progressive way of, of funding this. And the other things as well, like I would like to see a, a carbon tax as something um, that I think is another good idea. You know, it's, it's a carbon tax is a, is a Pagovian tax and I like I like those taxes, which is uh, a Pagovian tax is a is a tax on an externality. It's something that's uh, that it's like a, a market correcting tax. So, like with carbon, uh, it's it's artificially cheap. Like gas and oil and all this stuff is artificially cheap because it's the cost of the pollution and the cost of like of asthma and the health issues and of course global warming and and all these other things are not part of that cost. So a Pagovian tax says let's recognize or at least try to calculate what that cost should actually be. So if a if a gallon of gasoline should actually technically cost like, you know, five dollars per gallon or ten dollars per gallon or whatever, then that's what it should cost. And then, of course, what do you do with the revenue that's created from something like that? And I think the best thing to do with that revenue is, again, treat it as a dividend provided to everybody because everybody will be affected by the cost. You know, if you make gasoline more expensive, then you're going to make you know food more expensive. You're going to make all these other goods more expensive because your transportation is going to be more expensive. So by actually taking that money that's, that's generated, instead of giving it to government to like choose winners and losers, you give it to everybody – then that actually compensates and creates more choices as well because they can be like, well, okay, gas is now $5 per gallon, um, so maybe I'll make some different choices. Maybe I'll ride my bike a little bit more. Maybe I'll buy a, a, a car that has you know, better gas mileage. You know? like they will make better choices because it's more expensive. Or, and then other people might just take that money and go, oh, I don't really want to change anything. I'll just use the money that I got from this, and I'll just continue burning as much gas as before. But like, they have new options that didn't exist before because they have that money. So that's another, um, that's another good idea that I like. Yeah, and the side benefit would be pushing us towards less damaging and less costly in other ways kind of methods and, and, and goods. Yeah, it's, it's a very market-friendly way of uh, reducing uh, you know, carbon pollution and at the same time um, increasing incomes, reducing inequality, reducing poverty. And um, it's actually interestingly something that uh, that – the former now CEO of Exxon, like Rex Tillerson, um, you know, is is even someone interested in this idea. So this is not some idea that you know is some crazy like liberal idea or something either. Like a lot of economists like this, um, major uh, you know people in the environmental movement who are trying to tackle global warming like this idea. And so I do see this as something that we should be doing anyways. And so we might as well do it. And it should, you know, be considered part of this basic income as well. Uh, I've, I haven't done the math, but I, I had the idea or the thought came to me about the transition from a working labor of people to automation, and where you can tax corporations 
for that transition, and still they would save money. So basically, the, the cost reduction of hiring humans at tens of thousands of dollars a year uh, to move to automation that's going to be very, very cheap, especially over time, you can still tax them and it will still be cost effective for them to do the transition. And yet you do bring more money into the system that can then be funneled back into something like uh, basic income. Yeah, and, and, and so part of the, um, let, let me tie this in too, is that, um, okay, so we we would want we want to tax capital because capital is replacing labor. So, you know, if if as soon as if somebody buys say a robot and that robot replaces 100 people, then, you know, that robot is not labor, it's capital. And so the people who own that will will benefit uh, unless we, you know, make other choices. So you're referring to it like owning property for example, like capital, yeah. like, okay. Right. So what you want to do is, um, it, it, as we transition, so that you know fewer people are at least employed in this labor market, and more and more capital is employed, then instead of instead of uh, taxes on wages and incomes, you know, and salaries, we want to tax capital in some way. And so there's a bunch of ways ways of doing that. You know, the most the the one that we do right now mostly, you know, is just capital gains taxes and you know taxes on on dividends and stuff, and so but there are other like more creative ways that that we could do this. That's really interesting to me. Um, like uh, this is this is actually goes into another aspect um, of of this dividend idea as well too. Is that we we have actually funded this technology too. So it's really it's it's kind of a weird. Instance, if you can imagine like uh, training your replacement and how kind of messed up that feels when, let's say, someone like you know your boss says, "Hey, we found some really cheap labor. Um, we're going to need you to train them, and then you're fired." <laughs> and that's essentially what we're doing: is that we're except we're building machines, and we're saying, "Hey, could you teach these machines how to do your job?" And then you're fired. Except the weird part about this too is that we've actually paid for those machines. So like all the, all the original, like um, they call it like level one research in the US, like all of that's funded by taxpayer money. Like even if we go back again to when I mentioned the, uh, the self-driving car uh, challenge, you know, that was from the military, that was government funded. And so this was the government incentivizing this technology and uh, like the, if you look at the iPhone, like you know, there's so many different parts of the iPhone. Like the whole thing was funded, different technologies by government grants, government funding. So it's like our taxes are paying for the stuff that's replacing us, and then we're not being paid anything in return. It's essentially like we're we're all stockholders, and let's say we're stockholders for Apple, and Apple is telling us, you know. Um, yeah, we're not going to give you a dividend because you didn't do any work, but we will uh, allow you to buy an iPhone. That's pretty <laughs> cool, right? And so it, it's not the same thing. It's you, you can't just say that uh, that yeah, because you have the ability to buy this, that you're better off. Which is kind of the typical example is saying that well, you don't deserve any kind of, of return on this because you know it's it's just good to have that government funded research which makes these products. Well. I think that especially as late as as those products are replacing us as far as our ability to earn income, 
that it only makes sense that we're actually paid a dividend as like these stockholders. I mean, as citizens, we're a stockholder in the in in everything that that our tax money goes for. Right. And so, uh, like Yanis uh, Virafakis has a, has an interesting idea where he says, okay, so. We are we're granting these these patents and stuff for this technology, which you know again is government funded and stuff. So, how do we make it so that we receive an actual dividend? So, why don't we say um, say okay, a company who's going to go public, uh, you're going to go public, and you're using this patent from the government, to, and we're giving it to you. Uh, the cost of this is that. We want um, you know five ten percent of your stocks, and so you go public, and then a portion of those shares go into a like sovereign wealth fund. Um, you know, it's like a large version of what we do in Alaska, essentially. So we put like a, and then we add other funds to it as well. So we get like a huge national fund that's full of these stocks from all these companies that people have you know essentially become stakeholders through their taxes and then that funds this dividend that goes to everybody and i think that's you know a potentially smart way of doing this as well because you're actually you know leveraging what patents are uh you know we're leveraging stuff like copyright and stuff this monopoly that we give people yeah and people people also forget that so many large industries and large companies anywhere from oil to uh you know factory farms and all of that are getting subsidies that are basically taxpayer money in a sense. Oh, yeah. They're getting yeah tax breaks on from from taxes that everybody pays. Um, I do want to I do want to address the most to me one of the most interesting uh, aspects of also where the money can come from by by not spending on on some other things. But that ta- touches on this other co- complaint or, or resistance that I've heard about it being like socialism and socialism doesn't work and, you know, all the, all, all of that stuff. Because when I was thinking about, I was thinking about capitalism and I was thinking about it from the perspective of the evolution of social systems. And I thought that evolved just like all the other ones before it. And something's new has to come sooner or later. I don't know what it will be called. I don't know how it will look like. But I started thinking about some some hybrid of a sort of socialism at the bottom and capitalism at the top. And then I realized that that, to some degree or another, is already the case. We already have systems for, uh, you know, uh, food stamps and and help for the poor and um, taking care of elderly and all sorts of systems where we are taking care of citizens, Um, except some of these systems are not only uh, costly uh, in general, but they are wasteful from bureaucracy to the logistics of it to lack of oversight uh, and the, all the other problems that that come with it. So, if you want to talk about that a little bit, yeah, yeah. So, uh, the, this is why this gets into the support for this idea from those like uh, Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. I mean, these were like the fathers of the free market kind of thinking. And, uh, you know, this is when you give people cash, you are essentially you're expanding the market and you can actually make it work better. And this is the way like Friedrich Hayek worked at this. Um, you know, if you just look at the way like prices are figured, like, let's say, how do you how do you signal something through the market? How do you signal demand? You signal demand by buying something. So like it's a imagine somebody uh, opens an ice cream shop 
And, you know, as the, as the thinking goes that if people like the ice cream, then it'll do well. And if they don't, then it'll do poorly. So in order to signal that people actually have to have to buy it. So if you can imagine a town with no money and someone starts off an ice cream shop, then there's no way to signal that that's good ice cream because there's no money. You, you have to have that signaler. And so a, a basic income is essentially, it, it expands this so that instead of, uh, instead of only say 80% or 70% of the population having money for something, then 100% does. And so then that's like an even stronger signal of demand. Now, this is a way of making markets work better. It's not something that gets rid of markets in a way. It strengthens markets. And so, you know, it's, it's socialistic to say, let's not give you cash. Uh, I'm going to make your decision for you. Uh, I'm going to treat you because I'm paternalistic and I, I know what's best for you. So I'm going to just put you in some housing over here. This is public housing. It's free. This is yours. And I'm going to make sure that, you know, you get these food vouchers and I'm just going to make sure that you can only buy fruits and vegetables with it because candy's not bad, is bad for you. And I don't want you buying any alcohol or anything. You know, that's, none of that's market friendly. And those are, those are decisions being made for you by big brother, you know, or big nanny, you know, it's, it's, it's very paternalistic. And that's, that's your kind of socialistic mentality. Cash is not at all that cash is saying, I trust you. The market works. Uh, let's trust in the market. Let's trust in you. Uh, it's it's a way of actually, you know, making markets work better. I, I think of it as like, as like a higher gear of capitalism, where it's like we're we've been driving in say third gear for so long that we think even changing into fourth gear is somehow like socialism or something. It's like no, it's just we. We need to. It's like the 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 engine is at four thousand RPMs. We're redlining. We have to shift gears, or stuff's going to break down. So we actually have to do that. And then as soon as you do that, and you start actually providing people with more, worth more money to actually you know make that market work, then that's good for capitalism. Yeah, and I think uh, still making it clear that people can go upwards as high as they they want theoretically, uh, you know, alleviate some of some some of the concerns about. The appearance, at least, of socialism. But what about the issue or complaint where people would say, uh, "Oh, now you give everybody a thousand dollars, and so landlords everywhere are like, oh, everybody has an extra thousand dollars. Let's hike up the price by a thousand. Is that something we have to accommodate for and in, in laws and stuff?" Or yes, this is actually one of the I think very uh, intriguing. Uh, effects of this as well is that you're looking at, I think, greatly enhanced geographic mobility. So if you're right now, people are essentially locked in or attached or coupled to uh, highly populated, high cost of living areas. And in fact, that's why it costs more is because that's where like the opportunity is, that's where the jobs are. And essentially, if you're in, living in San Francisco, and of course, it's a lot of high rents is high. And your landlord says, hey, I'm going to raise the rent. You're like, oh, well, I can't move. I mean, my job is here. Um, you know, okay, I'll accept it. And so you just, you got to take it and, you know, you pay them more rent. And then the rents continue going up. But at the same time, there are so many other areas in the U.S. where people could live 
but they can't because you know jobs have dried up. Uh, you know, small Main Street USA has kind of disappeared, and I think that that when we actually do a fully universal basic income and everybody has this, then those new choices open up, and you can say, well, I don't have to live in San Francisco anymore. I'd actually kind of like to to try to start up my own business in you know somewhere in you know, like more of a rural area or something where like the rent's really cheap or you could even buy your own house uh, you know and start up an investment kind of thing and then that actually you're essentially telling your landlord no and that's really that's the that's the really important um, transformative potential of UBI itself is just this ability to say no that you didn't have before because as long as that income is guaranteed if you have enough for your basics then you can say no and so you can say that to your landlord, you can say that to your employer, you can say that to you know relationship partner or something. Like the you have these this choice to say no that makes that really kind of opens things up. And that's also where, you know, if if you can say no to your employer, if you can say, I refuse to work for seven dollars an hour, then then wages have to go up, you know, to attract people to those jobs. Yeah, and then the, and then the other interesting part is that because technology is getting so cheap, and because you combine it with this ability to say no to those jobs, then those things can then cross. So like a machine could be cheaper than somebody to you know if someone is refusing to do a job unless it's fifteen dollars an hour and a machine is ten dollars an hour, then suddenly you've incentivized automation, and so again that's what we want. I feel I want to accelerate automation. So that's another outcome of this that I'm really interested in. And so not only – it's just this ability to say no, uh, I think, is a big game changer as far as you know, allowing people to move where they want to, allowing people to, to work how and where they want to. Yeah. Um, like, uh, a lot of opens up. Like Kevin Kelly says, productivity is for robots. And uh, I think opening up uh, our ability to just really do what we care to do and what we want to do rather than spend entire lives – Doing something just mostly to survive uh, is kind of is kind of ridiculous, and I think that really opens up because it opens up, like you said, uh, freedom of choice, freedom of opportunity, and the freedom, like you said, to say no because otherwise, um, you know, you're you're stuck, and it's in in some weird sense, it's not that far from from slavery because you sort of born into the system where you don't really have a choice for many many people, right? And as someone who wants to always be a at least a, a freelancer or a creative person has been struggling to, you know, they say now if you want to do your own thing, you have to keep your job and do it on the weekend. So now even your free time, you have to work in order to break free to have the choices uh, to do that kind of stuff. Um, there's an interesting, um, there's a fascinating study by a, a award-winning economist, Daniel Kleinman. I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, but it's one that's being quoted a lot, but I think it's being quoted for the wrong, in the in the less interesting ways. And it showed how um, above the income in the case of the United States, it was very comprehensive. Above the income of seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, happiness doesn't doesn't grow the more the more money you make. Um, and people always quote that you see money doesn't bring happiness. But what the mo- the more interesting part is the farther down from seventy thousand you go, the further down incrementally you are more miserable, more le- less happy, and more uh, additional problems come in. And that, for me, is the interesting part because it's like, well, money might not buy you happiness, but lack of money sure buys you misery, to quote Daniel. 
It's exactly there. It's uh, it's crazy how quickly that goes up. And, and and so, yeah, we should like if you're if again, looking back, you were talking about earlier, like kind of like end goals. So if we're looking at kind of an end goal, I would think as a society, we should actually want people to to have at least, say, eighty thousand dollars per year worth of access to all of this, because we've seen that that happiness and uh, you know, everything grows so steeply until you hit that point. So if that's the way it works, then that makes sense as a, as a goal is making sure that, that we actually have reached that point for everybody so that there's that kind of, say, maximum or at least uh, more bang for your buck, say, happiness. So, you know, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, especially at that bottom level of even up to a thousand a month, you you get so much for very, very little relatively. Yeah. And also that's, it, it, there's, there's just so many other effects from that too. I mean, we're looking at biological and physiological effects. Yeah, it, there, there's so much, um, when people ask, you know, about, about the cost of basic income and how it sounds so expensive and stuff, I like to ask them, you know, what is the cost of not having a basic income? You know, just think about what we're spending right now that we're not thinking of as expenditures for not having it. You know, how much more are we spending on our healthcare system that we wouldn't with healthier population? How much are we spending on our criminal justice systems if we had a population that, you know, were not as arrested, if people were not committing these crimes, if people could even afford to pay for their, you know, there's actually people in jail right now who can't afford like a $5, a $10 kind of fee to get out. Like, it's just, it's so ridiculous that we're, we're wasting so much money and we're also wasting so much money on the productivity end. Like you mentioned a bit ago is that, you know, in the U S um, uh, only 30% of, of the working population are actually engaged by their jobs. So, 70% of people really don't care. They're not connected. They don't care about their work. There's no like pleasure in that. And that's, I think, a, a recipe for poor productivity. Um, it's It's been calculated that this kind of, it's a loss of say, you know, at least a few hundred billion dollars uh, in lost productivity from this. And then there's lost productivity from, you know, it's uh, if people who are who are sick, who come to work because they feel they have to, because they need that check, then they, they get other people sick. They get their coworkers sick. They get customers sick. And then like the whole system, people get more sick just because someone couldn't afford to stay home. So there's all these kind of expenses that we're doing because we don't have a basic income that I think would just completely disappear or, or drop if we had a basic income. Yeah. And if we kind of pull back and look at that big picture – then I firmly believe that we will actually save more money with a basic income than what we have right now. Yeah, I think the, the psychological costs and the costs to well-being in general are tremendous and we don't easily know how to calculate them in, in effect other than you know having so many people uh, uh, in depression and, and all the other uh, aspects. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I do want to cover because it, it, the theory is convincing enough for me, but what I've what I've loved seeing is how many new the existing case studies and how many new sort of pilot studies uh, coming out. Can you talk a little bit of, about some of the proof of concept uh, out in the world that's been done for this? Yeah, so uh, the. I think the best example anywhere in the world has actually been operating in Alaska since 1982, and that's the uh, Alaskan dividend. Uh, so that's a fully universal amount. It's everybody in Alaska since 1982 has gotten a check 
as their essentially share of ownership of the natural resources, uh, you know, the oil of Alaska. And that's been around on average about a thousand dollars per year. Nice. Um, most oh, recently, it's been like, yeah, most recently it's been like two thousand dollars per year, and that's per person too, kids included. So if you have a household of six people, then that's twelve thousand dollars for the household. You know, everybody gets the same amount. So that's a very interesting example of a, of a fully universal income. And they have, because it's, I think it's because it's universal that they really consider it like a right there in Alaska. And it's interesting. Most recently, the governor, uh, because of oil falling oil revenue, uh, the governor actually like cut it in half. And uh, that's something that's challenging, you know, like legally, uh, you know, there's, there's people who really hate that. And there's people saying, well, okay, I'd, I'd rather that than pay a state income tax. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see what's going to happen um, in Alaska in the future. They're still going to at least get $1,000, but they really should be getting more. And um, But that is a fully universal UBI. It's, it's, it's lowered their inequality. It's lowered their poverty. They're really, they're among the, the best, uh, you know, the, the lowest inequality and lowest poverty states in, in the country. And they also, um, you know, there's more happiness. Uh, they have more meaning in their work, and it's hard to like tie that down to the basic income. But it's just really interesting to me that um, the, every time I read something about Alaska, it's like, well, I wonder how that's attached because they're the only ones that are getting this universal, unconditional income. So that's for one thing. And uh, you know, we've 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 tried this. Uh, we actually tested versions of a negative income tax in the U.S. back in the '70s. You know, we did that in Seattle and Denver and Gary, Indiana and, and North Carolina. Um, you know, we, we Canada tried it in Delphi, Manitoba, where they actually did a full saturation site where this whole town essentially eliminated poverty for five years. And, you know, from that, they saw that that, um, you know, that new mothers work less because they decided to essentially use it as paid paternity leave and that students were able to just stop working to help out the family and able to focus on their on their schooling. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about that one was that unlike some people's expectation, people didn't actually stop working and just be lazy and not do anything. Right, right. And hospitalization rates decreased 8.5%. You know, that really showed this health boost. Amazing. Uh, in in Namibia and India uh, have been like kind of the only so far fully like full UBI experiments, and um, those are fascinating stuff. Like uh, out of Namibia, they found a three hundred one percent boost in self employment. They found like a forty five percent reduction in crime. They found a ninety five percent reduction in illegal hunting. You know, poaching. Um, there's a lot of really interesting effects uh, there. And in India, same thing with uh, this entrepreneurship too. They found that in the in those villages, given a basic income, they were three times more likely than control villages to start their own businesses. You know, they found that people use that money to buy more fruits and vegetables so that they they ate healthier. Um, you know, nutrition improved. Uh, it, I also like to point out just that this. I, it shows how powerful this idea is from both the entrepreneur aspect and the customer aspect because. One of the, the there's a woman in Namibia who her first payment she used it to buy flour and yeast and and she she started baking using like a kind of a makeshift oven 
And she ended up doing, it's like she's one of the biggest success stories where she ended up earning far more income on top of her basic income because her business did so well. And you can imagine that, that let's say she had gotten a loan from, let's say, the World Bank uh, to do the exact same thing. Well, she would have been selling to a village of people with no money. So she would not have done well. But because it was a full UBI, then she had customers that were able to purchase her goods and that money circulated within the economy. So it just shows how, how important it is to actually, you know, to develop these these local economies. And that's really what it does quite well. Um, most recently, Finland is, you know, just starting up their experiment. Uh, they're going to be doing that for the next two years. Um, they're essentially they're essentially giving a basic income to unemployed people to compare it to unemployment to see you know what is the difference like if you if you're able to keep your money uh, as you work instead of are pulling it away from you as you work is it a better incentive so it, it's one of those things that people don't realize the way that any means tested safety net which is you know all meet safety nets are means tested right now they're all targeted by targeting this you pull it away as they work and you essentially punish people for earning income. And so Finland thought, okay, well, why don't we actually just not pull it away? And hopefully that will incentivize them to actually take more like part-time work and, and various low wage work and, and temporary work and, you know, all these kind of new alternative works that's there's anyways, like, you know, can you imagine if you're, are you going to do some Uber driving if you lose your benefits and that makes you worse off? Like, no, but if you keep it, then you can. So Finland believes that it will increase employment and that's the test really. And we'll see. And the, the, the safety nets are not even perfect safety nets in the regard that even if you look at the example of the U.S. where, you know, I, I left a job a year ago and, you know, try to be a freelancer again and do my own thing. And if I were to want now to go look for a job and because maybe I'm not, I'm just, you know, freelance is hard and I'm not making enough. There isn't enough work. It doesn't just show up. You have to go and find it. Uh, if I now wanted to get unemployment until I find a job, I can't because you can only get it not not after quitting but after being laid off of a job just recently. Yeah. So in, that even doesn't exist uh, for me as an option in theory. So Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of friction in these systems where, you know, people are essentially prevented from from doing um you know, work that they would want to do. Like, uh, you know, even with employment too, like you said, you, you have to be fired first. It's not like you can't really quit your job and collect unemployment so that you can find a better job. You know, you actually have to be fired from it. Yeah. And so that, and it, that creates like conditions where you're working at jobs you hate because you can't quit and you're almost hoping you'll get fired. <laughs> so like, what kind of system is that? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, there's so much better way of going about this. So Finland is testing this and, you know, I think they're right and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens, but it's, it's great to see the country actually really putting some money behind this and experimenting with it. So it'll be, they're testing with 2000 people over the next two years. Canada is also looking at this. They're currently designing their experiment and um, you know, that'll be on in Ontario. And so the details are still, you know, mostly in the air, but it, it'll, it'll probably be like around, um, you know, $1,300 uh, per month. And um, do you know um, why Combinator, how they're going to pick 
the people in Oakland that they're gonna right. So Oakland's one. Oakland is one too. So Oakland is a the private initiative, and they're doing an experiment. The Oakland experiment is a pre-experiment. So they're really just kind of there. It's just giving it to like a hundred people, and it's mostly to kind of kind of tweak and develop the their uh, just get data. Yeah. They want to figure out how to do their main experiment because, you know, they're new to this. And so they're going to figure out what works, the best way to go about it, what they should be looking for. And then that's going to help them figure out how to do their main experiment. So the main experiment is still an unknown as to like where it'll be and what it will be because they even they need to figure that out through this first part. So this first part is just phase one. I am interested in the fact that it's not a government that's testing this out. This is this is fascinating. Yeah, and you can say the same. Give directly is another one too. So Give directly, who has been giving these unconditional uh, cash transfers, which are essentially basic incomes but targeted to the poor in Kenya and Uganda. And again, they've actually uh, been rated a, a top charity by GiveWell for five years in a row now. Um, uh, they are designing the the biggest yet uh, long term basic income experiment, where they're going to be giving uh, six thousand people. Uh, of this is a fully universal basic income for the next 12 years. And so this is a very long-term, never-been-done experiment um, to, to really get at you know, what happens. And so that's you know, it's incredible, and I'm really excited about that. And you, know, you, can even, you can even follow people. They actually started this up where there's the, you can go through the portal on the website, and you can actually see what people use the money on. Interesting, and you, it just kind of gives you a look at at this kind of in progress, what people are doing with it, just in real time. It's fascinating, uh, new thing that you can do. Uh, so yeah, so Canada's looking at this as a as a country. It's really exciting. Um, Scotland is uh, is is most likely going to do this. They're starting to look at it. They're starting to do this beginning stages of designing, and. Um, like Iceland is very interested. Um, UK is getting more interested, even just as a whole. So we might see something in England at some point. France, uh, their Congress actually uh, essentially passed like a recommendation to do an experiment there um, not too long ago. So we'll see. And also the the French president is very pro UBI. So um, we'll see. It seems likely that something in France is going to happen. Spain has the largest support in Europe for the idea, so I expect that at some point Spain will do something. Um, Brazil actually passed UBI into law in 2004. Uh, it, it's it's funny they kind of they don't get any 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 coverage or, or the, any any lauding for this, but um, they did it and. Uh, the thing is, is that they left it up to the executive branch, you know, the, the president to to implement it. So it's 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 on the books. So at any moment, the you know, the president of Brazil could wake up and decide that they need to do basic income now and then they could do Someone it. Someone can move forward with it. Yeah. Right. There would be no blockage. There'd be no like discussion. They could just do it. And so really, Brazil could surprise people. Who knows? Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I think China is a really interesting possibility too, as far as kind of the ability to surprise everybody, because again, 
they're not really a democracy. They don't have to like, you know, debate this if they decide because they want a consumer economy and they're also heavily investing in automation, then they might kind of combine those two together, just like we've been talking about even like, and they'll be like, wait a second, we've, we're heavily automating and we want consumers. So maybe we should actually give everybody money so they could spend on what's being produced. And therefore we, we could even be our own consumers instead of requiring on exporting out to everybody. And so at any moment, I feel that they could catch on and think that that's a good idea. We'll see. Um, but there's like, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, you know, all over all over the world. People are talking about it. India is, is uh, most likely uh, going to like fully endorse it uh, later this month. And so we don't know, are they going to do like a pilot? Are they going to like do like some kind of basic income targeted, you know, or they can do, we don't know. We just, we do know that, um, that India is like really interested. Their chief economist really likes the idea. They're doing an entire, their, their annual like economic survey, like UBI is the focus of it. So India could come out and like, you know, suddenly we'd have a billion people on the planet with a basic income, which is just like incredible to, to think about. Yeah, there's a lot of forces pulling in all sorts of directions, but in some ways it almost seems inevitable given the auto- the scale of automation that we're coming to because all- jobs have always been killed and new jobs have been created and new jobs will be created, but I think the rate in which they uh, switch and the extent to which automation and AI and computers are taking over you know, other jobs that they didn't before is going to just tip the scale where we would have to come up with better solutions. Yeah. And, and another thing I, I like to point out too, is that it, it's so funny when, when, so here we are talking about this potential future and we're debating of, of how, you know, maybe we're going to lose half of the jobs uh, in the next 20 years. And uh, it's a, so, so rarely it seems it's mentioned that we could actually just share that work more. You know, if, if there's, if there's half as many jobs, we could all be just as employed if we worked for 20 hours instead of 40 hours. Like, you, we could make that. And that's another thing I think about basic income is that instead of mandating that we cut these hours and say, you know, you're only allowed like a full-time job, we redefine as 20 hours. You could just say, by giving people a basic income, then they can choose. Like, how many hours do you want to work? Do you want to work 20 hours? Do you want to work 25 or 30? Like, that's up to you. Yeah, and that would actually share the work better. That's actually a really crucial point because I mean earlier I quoted Kevin Kelly and I think he's a brilliant thinker. But at um, at one of his interviews, I cringed when he said he was talking about uh, the decline in the rate of population growth mm-hmm. uh, and and basically encouraging people to have to have more babies because there isn't enough of a workforce to cover the the needs. And I'm thinking. This is this is crazy. This is not the solution. We just need to change the way we tr- relate to work, the amount of work between automation and just how much people make or how people make money in order to live. We just we can do just less work. We don't have to fill 40 hours or more a week per person on the planet. Yeah. And the other distinction too is is it's it's we need to drive the t- this distinction between between jobs and work or between paid work and other forms of work, because again, technology has allowed this growth of the sharing economy, 
And, you know, there, there is this more of this ability to do stuff, um, you know, for, for free where people are, say, you know, prosumers where they both produce and consume and there's no real cost there. It's like, we're creating our own content, you know, we're in this old paradigm, we would pay to produce, let's say a television show. And now kids, uh, you know, with our say so much of their time, instead of spent watching TV, it's spent like on Snapchat. Or, you know, you're creating YouTube videos and then you also watch other YouTube videos. And so then this stuff doesn't really have any kind of, of monetary you know, aspect to it. You can, it's all essentially free and therefore it's competing against this other stuff that, that isn't free. And it's eroding that as well. And I think that's a great thing as long as people have their basic needs covered. You know, as soon as you as soon as you have your basic covered, you can actually do more of that stuff. You can do more unpaid more work. You can do volunteering. You could do open source software work. Um, you know, the stuff that I feel is really important that people are are essentially kind of prevented from right now. As long as you have to get an income. Yeah, I've heard the question: uh, What are we all going to be poets now that you know automation is taking over? But I think people underestimate just how creativity knows no bounds. There will be so much that people would actually do that comes from a different place as like the have to do kind of work. And it won't, we might not even call it work, but it would be something that people do that are creative in all sorts of different ways. Uh, we can entertain each other to, to no end <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Yeah. I mean, I feel I'm living that right now. It's, it's like, it's really hard for me to even kind of define what my work day is because it's my life now you know it's it's i don't like go to an office and work from like eight to ten or whatever it's like it's throughout my entire day i'm always i'm always thinking about stuff related to you know basic income and and the movement and and maybe what i'm going to write about or something i'm going to tweet and you know social media and strategy and it's all like throughout my entire day it it, it, but at no point does it feel like a job you know, it's it's hard to even sell it as work. I mean, it's it's just it's, it's meaningful. I I enjoy it. It's a passion, and uh, it's something that I'm only able to do because I've essentially you know crowdfunded my own basic income so that I can focus on that. And it, it, I just I really want other people to have that ability too. And if you want to get a job, if you want to seek some employment somewhere, nothing is stopping you from doing that with a basic income. In fact, you are more enabled to do that. You are more able to retrain. You're more able to educate yourself in, in some way. You know, there's there's so many new doors that are opened if you have that. Whereas right now, it's just we're preventing so many people from doing like some really incredible work that um, people would be so much happier with. And, and of course, what better work is there than the stuff that people are, are happy with doing? You know, you're going to do a job better if you enjoy it. Definitely. Well, I'm glad you do what you do, and I'm glad you have figured out the uh, the setup to allow you the freedom to do this. Because the more I got into UBI, the more I realized that this is an idea that can be accomplished. It even seems like a you know quite quite a, a long ways uh, perhaps. But the more people think about it, the more people are even aware of it. The more it bubbles up the better chances it has. So I wanted to take at least my little part in trying to spread the word. And really, thank you for coming on the show and, and, and doing what you do daily. And I think it's fantastic. And you have, you have my full support. 
Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and thank you for getting involved because that's really, that is, I think that's the biggest barrier is, is just a matter of awareness. It's a matter of people understanding that this idea exists, that it's a real possibility and that they should be demanding it, you know, from their representatives, uh, from each other. It should be something that, that we should be pushing for is like a new kind of, kind of uh, central like right of the 21st century is, uh, you know, to a, to a better future, you know, let's actually, let's actually think, you know, utopian. Let's say it's, it's weird how that became a bad word. And <laughs> it's uh, here we are like surrounded by all these dystopian scenarios and laughing at people for thinking utopian. And I'm just thinking, you know, we used to have like these great world fairs where it was all about like thinking about how we can make a better future. And I think that's what we should be doing. We should be claiming that. Let's create a better future together. Yeah, I think we can use it as a as a as sort of guiding vision. Um, yeah, yeah, I I love it. Uh, well, I'll put links in the show notes, but uh, tell folks where they can find you online. Oh sure, yeah. So you can uh, you can find me at scottsantons.com as my blog, and uh, you can support me on patreon.com. Uh, uh, patreon.com slash Scott Santons. And I also recommend uh, head over to reddit.com slash r slash basic income. Uh, that's like a giant library slash archive of all things basic income that have been published online you know, for years now. And if you really want to study it, that's a, that's a great place to go. And if you want to stay up on news, basicingcome.org is great like original news as far as you know, staying up to date on on what happens as it happens. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. You can find all the links, show notes, and references on lastthortle.com slash two for the episode number. If you want to support the podcast and want to hear more conversations like this, you can do that on lastthortle.com slash support for as little as a dollar per episode. Thanks again and see you on the next round.